If, uh, if we can make our ways back to our seat, I know it's always a good time to be able to fellowship together, but uh, like Brian was saying, if you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, we want to send a, a, a warm welcome and thank you for being with us. We, you know, it really is our prayer that uh, you encounter God in a real, personal, powerful, meaningful way because we're anti-religion. We want you to know that. We are anti-religion. But we are absolutely 100% crazy about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand clap this morning. I've been, I've been out speaking at some other churches the last few weeks. And last week, I was in Berea. And uh, I spoke at a marriage conference or a, a marriage retreat. And I always love doing that. Has a great time. You know, the family's extremely important. But uh, Friday night, one of the teachers uh, did a session on unity in the marriage. And uh, the lesson was really, really good. Uh, I loved it. But they threw a huge, I mean huge surprise at the end. They said, now what we're going to do is we're going to put what we've learned into practice. And we want to see how uh, united you are with your spouse. And then they hit play on their uh, phone and started playing this love romance music and everybody started dancing together, slow dancing together and I was like, uh-oh. I told Rachel, I said, you know what? This is the first time I've ever danced with anybody sober. Which means it's been a long time. I've not been drunk since I got saved, okay? So that's been 20 years, but but I was sitting there, I was going, but they didn't just play one song. They, they played two songs, three songs, all this stuff. And Rachel, she was like, I said, look, 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 trust me, I, I, I'm a good dancer. Just follow my lead. And, you know. and so what we're going to do at the end of this service, we're going to. <laughs> Anyways, that was, that, 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 that was great. That was great. But uh if you got your Bible with you, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Clay's been uh, teaching on and preaching on a sermon series called Love is War. And uh, 1 Corinthians is put into, or 1 Corinthians 13 is uh, put into the Bible because God is a genius. He, he knows everything. God is a relationship expert, you know. The Bible is a book about relationships. Jesus died on the cross so that a relationship with God would even be possible. And, and because God knew that we would struggle fully understanding what love is, and, and Clay's done a, a really good job teaching and, and not just explaining what love is, but what love is not, you know, God understood that, you know, especially us here in America, we would struggle understanding what true love was. So he included an entire chapter in the New Testament to help us understand what love is. And out of all of the words that, that God could have used to begin to describe and define what love is, the first word that God uses in 1 Corinthians 13 is, love is patient. Listen, if we're going to love well, we're going to have to learn how to be very patient with one another, right? And another word for patient, if you read it in the King James, it says long-suffering. You know, and, and there's only one way to learn long-suffering, that's suffer long. I mean, uh, no, there's got to be a better way. 
But the Bible says a man of understanding is patient. It said a, a, a man that has wisdom is patient. So these are all skills that we can learn. We can learn how to be patient, and it doesn't always have to be super, super difficult. And, and the first way to, to, to uh, begin to understand and love people well in the area of patience is by simply putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes. The problem that I see in a lot of relationships is most people are trying to put others in their place instead of putting themselves in their shoes. There's always two ways of looking at something. So uh, if, 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 if patience means that we're godly, I wonder what impatient means. I paused for an amen, but it didn't come. It's all good, though. I'm not preaching on patience today. And then he talked about kindness. And, and kindness, the Bible talks about that we are to put on kindness. And the way I like to uh, describe kindness is kindness is bringing the best out of others. Listen, anybody can see you for who you are, but it takes somebody that really loves you to see you for what you can be. And all of us have the potential to become somebody greater than what we really are and do something greater than we've ever done. So, you know, it, it's possible for us to change and grow and, and reach our potential, and, and that's God's plan and will for, for our lives. And then last week he talked about that love does not envy. That was a difficult one, obviously. And, and the thing about it, when, when you begin to break down these verses and you begin to break down word for word what the definition of love is, Sometimes when we don't know clearly what the meaning of that is, the best way to define it is to define what love is not. And so Paul writes here, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll start, we'll start at verse 1. He says, though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now who cares if you can speak in tongues if you're mean in English? I mean, I know a lot of people that speak in tongues, but they're mean as can be. Hateful. Hateful. Negative. Critical. Gossiping. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at your neighbor. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. And this last phrase is what we're going to talk about today. Is love is not proud or boastful. Let's pray. Father, today I ask that you would speak through me, overcome all of my inabilities. Open us, our hearts up, Lord, that we may receive your word with genuine sincerity, truth, and transparency. Lord, we want to be lovers of God and lovers of people. And if we don't love you well, we won't love others well. You said that we're to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You said uh, that is the greatest of all the commandments. But, Lord, we fall short of that every day. So speak to us today. Reveal to us areas of our lives, our own heart. Help us to look into the mirror of your word and help us to see you and how much unlike you we are that we may change and become like you because, Lord, we love you, we are yours, and we want to represent you well. God, we bless you today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. 
And everybody said, The Bible teaches us that love is the basis of all relationships. Jesus taught in Mark chapter number 12 that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. He said this is the first and the greatest commandment. You know, I hear people talk all the time about how much they love God. And the truth is, I can tell how much people actually love God by how well they love people. See, the, 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 uh, the way that you love people is the visible measurement of just how well that you love God. And he said the first commandment is to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the first and the great commandment. And if we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we're not going to be able to love people out of the overflow of our love for God. The reason we cause so much pain in our relationships, the reason why we cause so much damage, the reason why we, we hurt one another so much is because we don't know how to love people well. And the only way that we can love people well is to love people out of the overflow of our love for God. So as we love God better, as we love God more, because the love of God is, the Bible says, is, is beyond our ability to even understand. Paul said that, that he prayed that, that God would open up the eyes of our heart, that we might know the, the height, the depth, the width, the length of the love of God that passes all understanding. So, you know, love is a very important thing, but it has to be more than just emotional love. It's got to be much more than feeling. Loving people means that we, we don't just say it with our words. The Bible says that we are not to love in word only, but in deed and in truth. And so we, we have to put love into action. We have to put love in, uh, into action in our relationships, toward the lost, toward our spouse, toward our children, toward our co uh, co-workers. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, that you Love one another. He went on to say in John chapter 15 that greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. So he's saying, listen, you know, relationships are important. Matter of fact, the only thing we're taking to heaven with us are people. And if we're going to become more like God, we're going to have to learn how to love people well. And so God being the genius that he is, being the relationship expert. Did you know that God's been dealing with people for thousands of years? He's been dealing with people for thousands of years. And he understood that we would uh, not clearly understand what love was. So he included a whole entire chapter to help define what love is. And we've been working on that over the past few weeks. Like I said earlier, we, we talked about how that, that uh, love is patient, love is kind. Last week it says love does not envy. And verse 4 says that love is not proud or boastful. So the Apostle Paul comes along, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to break down the definition of love word by word. And so in verse 4, it says, love is not proud. One of the ways of coming to the definition of what true, genuine love is, is by defining what love is not. He said, love is not proud, and love is not boastful. So that causes us to ask the question, what is pride? Now, I've given you a, a few definitions. I, I think this is in your outline. A few words to help us define what love is. And I'm going to give you their definitions. The first word that I want to put down, and I think this is up here. The first word that defines pride is selfish. 
The truth is, nothing reveals your selfishness more like getting married. Go ahead and laugh. Go ahead, it's all right. I did not know that I was even a selfish person until I had people in my life to remind me of that every single day. Probably nobody in this room. But the truth is, because we've lived sing, uh, single for all of our life, the truth is we don't know how to live any other way. So it's impossible for us not to be wrapped up in our own little world, living life our way. But any person entering into a marriage and thinking they can live their life the same way they did when they are single is two words, stupid. It's stupid. It's stupid to think that, you know, as, as a matter of fact, God has designed marriage in such a way that he intends to kill the both of you. And, and, and listen, marriages were God's idea. Marriages are made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. Right? Marriages were, were God's idea. But, but the truth is, you know, just because it was God's idea, just because it was God's plan, just because it was God's intended design purpose for us, to, doesn't mean that we know how to relate to one another well. You know, you can live off love all that you want, but, you know, we have to make sure that we understand what true love is. So, the first word here, that describes what pride is, because love is not proud or boastful, is selfish. Now, the word selfish means overly concerned with one's own welfare and a lack of concern for others. Listen, you know, you, know, you don't have to be full of yourself to be prideful. You can just not think about any, anybody else at all. You can get wrapped up in your own little world. And, and that's selfishness. I would say that the majority of the fights that we get in relationally is rooted in pride and selfishness. Amen? We like things our way. B, number two. The second word is arrogant. The word arrogant is overbearing. It means overbearing. It means an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or ability. The third word is conceited. Conceited means to be in love with oneself. You ever met anybody like that? I know a few dudes that's never walked past a mirror they don't like. Nothing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach on this, so just listen. If it's on you, then just understand, I'm not aiming it at you intentionally. Nothing reveals the conceited nature of people like selfies. Boy, it's quiet up in here. Some people love to look at pictures of themselves and assume that everybody else does as well. That's called conceited. We live in a selfie. Now, again, I'm not saying that you should never take pictures of yourself. But look, if you blow up the Facebook feed, Instagram feed, Twitter feed with pictures of yourself, you need to get delivered. I mean, what have we come to? John Andrew loves to take selfies. Now, I like to take pictures with deer. That's a different story. I'm not conceited. You know, I'm, I'm trying to emphasize the deer. Conceited means to be in love with oneself. Having an excessively high opinion of oneself. You ever noticed or, or ever wondered why people don't put ugly pictures of themselves on social media? How come people don't do that? I'm trying to figure that out anyways. 
The, the last word is the word egotistical. It means constant, excessive reference to oneself to be self-absorbed. So we're defining pride. You can put all those words together. A prideful person is selfish, arrogant, conceited, and egotistical. And, and, and that at least gives us a base to define what love is not. So we can at least make a little bit of progress by identifying things that should be anti-love and try to eliminate those things in our lives. That's how we become better lovers of God. Now, the first thing I want to talk about this morning is how does pride affect our personal lives? How does pride affect our personal lives? And the first thing I want you, this is in your outline here, the first thing is pride prevents us from growing. Pride prevents us from growing. If you have pride in your heart, you cannot grow. Pride in your heart will keep you from growing because pride renders you unteachable. When you are unteachable, you have already become as smart as you're ever going to be. You've already learned it all. You know it all. Now, I constantly stand in amazement of how much I have learned since I've known everything. Teenagers are a perfect example of this. Listen, you can tell them not to do something or this is, you're going to get hurt if you keep doing this. You better not do that, blah, 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 blah. You know what their response is? I know. When I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, people tried to uh, tell me that it was bad. And you know what my answer was? I know. I know. They would try to give me advice. I know. They try to tell me not to do that. I know. They try to help me change. I know. But the truth is, it's what you learn after you know everything else that really matters. But love keeps us or prevents us from growing. That, that's extremely important. And the truth is that when our head starts to swell, our mind begins to shrink. When our head begins to swell... Our mind begins to shrink. Why? Because pride keeps us from growing. Pride keeps us from improving. You know, we ought to be growing in humility every day. I mean, the Apostle Paul, if you, if you examine his life, you saw how he grew in humility. When he first describes himself, he says that I'm the least of the apostles. A few years later, he says, I am the least of the saints. Toward the end of his life, he said, I am the chief of sinners. So he's growing in humility. And that's the way a, a true, growing, thriving Christian is not growing in themselves and being puffed up, but it is actually humbling themselves at a greater level. And Jesus is a perfect example of that. The Bible says that Jesus did not consider it to, uh, robbery to be equal with God, but of himself made himself a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even to death on the cross. He said, you know what? Even though I'm God in the flesh, I'm going to humble myself and live my life from a place of humility. I'm going to take on human flesh, experience human temptation, human trials, human problems, human heartache, human sickness, all this stuff. He said, I'm going to experience all of that, but I'm going to humble myself. And the Bible says, because he humbled himself more than anybody else, God exalted him and given him a name above every name. 
The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due season. The Bible says, he that humbles himself shall be exalted. He who exalts himself shall be humbled. And so, pride will keep us from growing. And another thing that pride will do, pride will deafen us to the advice and warning of those around us. Listen. If you can't take advice, you are full of pride. Most, listen, most people would rather give advice than take it. But in real life, blessed is those that receive advice than those that give it. It's better to receive good advice than it is to give it. Most people already know everything. This is another way that you can uh, determine whether you have pride in your life. When you ask somebody's counsel... I can't tell you how many people I've sat down with that, you know, want counsel, want advice, want to know what they should do. I take the time. I share that with them. I pray for them. You know, I'm thinking, this was a good meeting. And then they call back or they come stop in. They say, listen, nothing's changed. It's still getting difficult. I said, well, have you done anything that I told you before? They said, well, no. You know what I call them, don't you? Ask. Holes. A-S-K. A-S-K. Get your mind out of the gutter. You know what an ask hole is, right? Somebody that asks for your advice, but doesn't listen to anything you tell them. Can you handle that? Is that all right? That, that didn't offend you, did it? Good. Because that's prideful. Here's something else. I'd encourage you. I don't know if this is in your outline or not, but the Bible says anyone willing to be corrected on the path, is on the pathway of life. Anyone refusing has lost his chance. The reason growth is important is that growth determines who you are. Who you are determines who you attract, and who you attract determines your future. You know, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. And when it comes to pride, the day you stop growing is the day that you forfeit your potential and your future because everything that you have to do and change is what actually makes, you poss- makes it possible for you to be able to grow into your potential. Every level that you grow, you have to be willing to give something up. If you want to reach your potential, you're going to have to give up your pride. Amen? Pride prevents me from growing. Here's the second thing. Pride keeps us from seeing our own faults. Now, I could preach a month on this one. Listen, because I know some folk that they can find a problem with every solution and believe that is a gift from God. Some people have the spirit of criticism on them. If you have become a professional fault finder, God forbid, because he doesn't, God doesn't need any of those kind of people. You know what I'm saying? You don't even have to be spiritual to find fault. And the truth is most people find what they're looking for. And when you're full of pride, you can find fault in everybody else except yourself. And Jesus said, look, don't become that way. He said, you need to get the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out of your brother's eye. And so often what he's saying there, it's easier to see the character flaws of others than it is to see the character flaws of ourselves. Amen? How many blind spots are you aware of in your life? 
I mean, I've had a lot of people say, probably about four or five. I said, really? You, you, you can see your blind spots? I thought blind spots were things you couldn't see. But, but anyway, pride keeps us from seeing our own faults. Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye first. Then you'll be able to get the speck out of your brother's. You know, have you ever heard anybody say that love is blind? Well, that's not true. Pride is blind. You know, love is not blind. Pride is blind. Pride blinds us to our own faults, and pride blocks us from an honest self-assessment. Here's the truth. Most of us kind of lean toward the, 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 the sphere that we are doing really good because we come to church. Unfortunately, coming to church does not equate spiritual growth. Coming to church doesn't equate us becoming like Jesus. Coming to church doesn't make us holier than other people. And people that have become professional fault finders take on this self-righteous attitude that they are better than everybody else because they've been coming to church longer. Some people think because they've been in the church for 20 years that that qualifies them to have the right to tell other people what they think. People become holier than thou. Listen, the Pharisees were like that. Jesus said, if your righteousness does not, uh, uh, is not greater than the righteous, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not going to make it in. Some people are modern day Pharisees because they've been able to quote a few scriptures, they've been attending church for a while, and for some reason they think that that qualifies them to speak over other people what they think about them. There's some people that wake up with just a mouthful of teeth. And sometimes the truth is the most spiritual thing you can do is shut up. It's biblical. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to talk, a time to refrain from talking. You know, it's been said that even a fish wouldn't get caught if it kept its mouth shut. That's some good advice. The reason God created us with one mouth and two ears is because he wants us to listen twice as much as we you know, God created the bullfrog with an extra-large muscle. And this extra-large muscle creates a sound that comes from this bullfrog. How many knows what a bullfrog is? And so what happens is the bullfrog begins to croak. And the bullfrog croaks so loud that it sends a vibration to the brain, canceling out the noise of its croaking. In other words, every time it croaks, it cannot hear the obnoxious noise coming out of its mouth. A lot of people I think you get that one. And so we need to learn how to listen. The truth is we never feel, never feel more loved than when we're listened to. And there's a difference between hearing and listening. And like I said earlier, the problem with us in relationships, we're too busy putting people in their place instead of putting ourselves in their shoes. Sometimes we need to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, walk a mile in their shoes, and then come back and have an honest conversation about it. The problem is pride keeps us from honest self-examination. Pride blocks honest self-assessment. Now, 
just, just ask yourself this question. Don't lift your hands. Don't do any of that stuff. But, you know, if you were to make an honest assessment about what kind of Christian you really are or what kind of person you really are, how would you describe yourself? See, the truth is most of us have two or three million things wrong with us. And the Lord is so good and so gracious only to deal with one or two of them at a time because if he really exposed what we were really like, if we were to put your life up on this projector screen and, and of how you read to your husband or your wife or your coworker, the conversations you had or the text messages you sent or the phone calls that you made, the truth is a lot of us would have to run outside the door ashamed of what we've said. See, pride will keep you stuck in that particular area thinking you're all right and when reality is, it's not all right. Pride was the original sin. Pride was what caused Satan to fall from heaven. Pride is what, what transformed Lucifer into what we know today as the devil. Pride turns uh, angels into demons. Did you know that Lucifer at one time was an angel. But pride was found in him. As soon as pride was found in him, the Bible says he fell just like that from heaven. Now that's important. I'm getting ahead of myself, so I want to hold up for just a second. Here's the third thing. The third thing is pride brings God's resistance. Now, pride brings into our life what any rational Christian would think would be the worst case scenario. The Bible says God resists the, and he gives grace to the. So pride brings God's resistance. We would be far better off fighting every demon in hell than to find ourselves in opposition to God. Like, for example, the apostle Peter. Now, Everybody knows that he was the man of God. He preached on Pentecost. You know, he, he, he told Jesus, he said, you know what? You know, Jesus was revealing to him the suffering he was going to have to go through in, in Matthew 26. And, and Peter says to Jesus, he said, I know that everybody else will forsake you and, and will deny you, but not me. Not me. You can count on me. I, I will never do that. He said, I will go to prison and to death for you. And, G and after Jesus just told him, no, you won't. I love Peter. Jesus tells, <laughs> tells him what he's going to have to go through. And the Bible says, Peter rebuked Jesus. I, I mean, I'm careful to say this stuff because I probably rebuked him on accident a few times. You know, anytime he tells you to bring correction into your life and you ignore it, that's just like rebuking him. That's rough. I'm trying to throw some humor in there. But it's a serious thing. But Peter had courage. He just didn't know where the source of his courage was coming from. And Jesus said, not only will you deny, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And when we think about God's opposition, the opposition I'm talking about that the Bible teaches comes upon the proud is not necessarily the Lord fighting against them, Sometimes the opposition that we experience from God is God removing his grace from our life. You understand what I'm saying? You know, it's not because nobody can fight God and win. 
And so God is not trying to fight with us. You know, it, it, sometimes when we're struggling with Jesus or struggling with God, that's as close as we've ever been. But when we have pride, we're not struggling with God. We're rebuking God. And God says, if you want to do things your way, I'm going to resist the proud. I'll give grace to the humble. He just kind of backs up and removes the grace from our life. And the Bible says that we have to have grace to be able to stand. If any man thinks that he can stand, the Bible says, take heed lest he fall. Peter thought he could stand for Jesus. Peter thought that he would die for Jesus. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, well, here's your opportunity. And listen to this. God gave Peter an opportunity to die for him just a few days before he would die himself. And the Bible says Peter denied Jesus three times. And listen. I'm saying, if it takes the grace of God to die for Jesus, I can promise you it takes the grace of God to live for Jesus. It's not something you can do in your own strength. You know, Peter was a very strong-willed person. Peter thought that he had the self-willpower to live the Christian life. He thought that in his own ability, his own wisdom, his own strength, that he could follow Jesus to the point of death. And reality is, everybody's willing to die for Jesus until we get an opportunity. I mean, I'll never forget. First time I went to a persecuted nation. You know, we, we flew into India and we're traveling into Indonesia. And Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. Over 180 million Muslims live there. As a matter of fact, Indonesia is an Islamic republic. It's illegal to convert a Muslim to Christ. So we're in Singapore airport. And, you know, all of a sudden on one of these big TV screens, you know, a news station runs across and said, 76 Christians killed in Muslim-Christian conflict. And then you look at your passport. This is, it just got real. It just got, because I'd said so many times, I would die for, I was Peter. I'd die for Jesus. That's all I want to be. I've got this Messiah syndrome and I need to die. It's easy to do that in America. But now, you're looking, and you look at your board pass and it's the same place that it says you're getting ready to fly into. And to make matters worse, Rick Clinton said to me, he said, Don, if you want to stay here in Singapore while I go in and, 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 and do the ministry there for three days, I'll fly back and we'll travel back to America and we won't tell anybody you didn't go unless they ask. I was like, great. But I mean, I already knew, I already knew that there was a potential. I mean, I knew they, they literally kill Christians there. It's not a fake. There's no hypocritical Christians in Indonesia. Matter of fact, they have to be dead before they can even say yes to Jesus. Baptism is a big deal in Indonesia because, listen, you are renouncing Islam, which means that you have to die. So when they give their life to Jesus, they sign their death certificate. And we planted 12 churches in Indonesia, and all 12 church planters had had their brains beaten out for the gospel. One of them was a woman. And you talk about intense. But I get on the plane here. Hey, I've been preaching and I've been proclaiming. I die for Jesus. And it got real. And you know what? I'm doing some honest self-examination. Honest self-assessment. The first question I ask myself is, am I really saved? 
And I'm serious. I'm mean, am I, do I really believe this? Do I really believe what I've been preaching? Am I safe? So I go through the checklist. I go, do I believe Jesus was born of a virgin? Yeah. Do I believe he lived a sinless life? Yeah. Do I believe he died on the cross for my sins? Yes. Do I believe that he was buried and raised from the dead on the third day? Yeah. Check. Worst case scenario, if they kill me, I'm going to heaven. And you can't threaten somebody with heaven, can you? But I found out everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there. Right? Now, the second question I asked myself, I didn't get an answer to. Second question I asked myself was, did God even really tell me to come on this trip or my fool self get an airplane ticket and get on this plane and try to be some kind of hero? I couldn't even answer that question. I said, I'm not a hero for Jesus. I'm a zero for Jesus. And if he don't protect me and keep me safe, I'm going to keep myself killed. I mean, that's why I say all the time, listen, I'm not afraid of what the devil can do to me, but I am terrified of the foolishness I can get myself in because you know what? I've been stupid many times. The great theologian John Wayne said life's tough. It's even tougher when you're stupid. And I don't care how good you think you are, you're just one step away from stupid. And don't ever forget stupid hurts. These are words to live by. It's worth your time coming this morning. Let me move on. So how does pride affect our personal relationships? Well, you know, it affects our personal lives because, you know, number one, it keeps us from growing. Number two, it keeps us from seeing our own faults. Number three, it brings God's resistance. Now, how does it affect our relationships? And a lot of issues that make relationships complex are rooted in two things, pride and selfishness. And they are the exact opposite of what God said love is really, really is. So let's, how does it affect our relationships? Number one, pride causes trouble. Now listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs 13, 10. Arrogance causes nothing but trouble. And, and here's the thing. There's a lot of different dimensions of pride. You know, there's selfish pride. There's stubborn pride. There's foolish pride. Selfish tr- uh, pride thinks that everything is about them. Listen, nowhere in America are Christians more selfish than in America. You know, we do tend to get wrapped up in our own little world and think that everything is about us. We, we choose whether we go to churches based upon what those churches have to offer us. If we've got a good worship team, if we've got okay preaching, you know, if we have a nice big facility, you know, we have all those. We've created an entertainment culture with a bunch of consumers saying, me, 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 me. And, and that's the way that it is in, in America, but I believe God's going to change that. But selfishness thinks that, that, that everything's about me. Stubborn pride won't allow you to forgive and will not allow you to keep from admitting that you're wrong. Some of you right now, the relationships that are most important to you are strained and there's strife simply because you will not acknowledge that you have been wrong. We would rather win a fight and lose our family than to save our family and lose our pride. How many of you have been in a fight with your spouse, with your parents, with your friends, that in reality 
The only reason things were bad is because you refused to take responsibility for your part of why things are bad. Because you refuse to admit, I am wronged. We like to play the blame game, right? Anybody that places blame on everybody else is full of pride. Because the truth is, listen, there's always two sides to every story. And most people make their minds up about a situation without even considering the other person that's involved. But pride, stubborn pride, won't allow us to forgive or admit that we're wrong. Foolish pride is ultimate self-deception. Mark Twain said, our temper gets us into trouble, but pride keeps us there. I would say that stupidity gets me in trouble, and then my pride is what keeps me there. You know, I've got this gift of sarcasm that Rachel has just not had the revelation yet of. She doesn't think that it's funny, even though I do. Even though for 20 years she said, that's not funny. That's, I mean, if you have to listen to it every day, it's not funny. Well, that offended me. Because love is easily offended, right? We bite each other's head off. We talk about each other. We scream and yell at each other. Why do you do that? Because I love you. I love you, you crazy woman. I mean, right? But we won't humble ourselves. Listen, the truth is, nobody is ever choked to death swallowing their pride. But it's very difficult for a proud person to do that. Now, when it comes to arguments, this is my philosophy. When it comes to relationships, listen, when brothers fight brothers, only the devil wins. When church people fight church people, only the devil wins. And when it comes personal, this is what I say. The God in me will not fight the God in you. The God in me will not fight the God in you. So if we're fighting, we know that whatever we're fighting is not God. It's our flesh. And that we have to love one another in spite of ourselves. Listen, when me and Rachel first got married, listen, she thought I was all that in a bag of chips. I can't blame her, but... When we got married, she, she married me because of me. <laughs> oh, help her, Jesus. Because she only saw one side of me, right? And it was the best side. It was the image side. But there's a difference between image and integrity. There's a difference between reputation and character. Reputation is like perfume, you know. It, 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 it masks the human odor. Character is what you really smell like. Right? And so, I thought that she loved me because of me. But now after being married 20 years, I realized she didn't love me because of me. She loves me in spite of me. Because now she's got a good taste of the real me. And in reality, sometimes that's a rude awakening. Here's the next thing. B, pride keeps us from admitting that we're wrong. I say this all the time. Rachel, the Lord knows I have my problems, but being wrong is not one of them. How many wives you got husbands like that? Is that just a men problem? Thank you, ladies. You know the first people cast out of heaven are cowards, so. I hate being wrong. I hate it. Especially when I think I'm not. 
which is mostly every day. And I really hate it when I admit I'm wrong. And Rachel goes, took you a long time to admit it. Can't you just take some of this wrongness? I don't. Oh. You ever feel that way? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I mean, I ought to be good at being wrong and admitting that I'm wrong, but it still kills me. Why? Pride. Pride. But pride keeps us from admitting that we are wrong. Proverbs 28, 13. A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful, but he who confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. You know, under the sound of my voice are husbands and wives, moms and dads, parents and children, friends and loved ones whose relationships are destroyed today because you do not have enough humility and you have so much pride that you refuse to admit you're wrong. What a simple word. What a simple phrase. I am wrong. I wonder how many divorces have happened because people did not want to admit they were wrong. I wonder how many families were completely destroyed simply because they are so full of pride that they refused to admit that they were wrong. Why is admitting we are wrong so hard? How many times have you been wrong up to this point in your life? A couple of million times. Why does it still kill us to admit we're wrong? Because we are prideful. Amen. It's hard. Pride will keep us from admitting that we're wrong. Listen, pride puts problems over people. Most people would rather win an argument than save a relationship. And here's the reality. In meaningful relationships, the first to apologize is bravest, the first to forgive is strongest, and the first to forget is the happiest. The first to apologize is the bravest, the first to forgive is the strongest, and the first to forget is the happiest. I'm going to wrap this up if we want to come to music. See, pride keeps us from saying, I'm sorry. You know, I know this is really deep. It's blowing your mind, right? But in a perfect world with perfect, perfect people, apologizing wouldn't be necessary. But since only God is perfect and the rest of us are people, apologizing is absolutely mandatory. Now again, I know that doesn't sound really deep and really uh, theological, but the truth is it is impossible to have happy and healthy relationships without saying you're sorry. I mean, I wonder right now, I guarantee you, at least this was true for me uh, many years ago, is that I really did not know how much I had done that really hurted Rachel or hurt Rachel in our relationship until we had a God moment. 
I mean, I wonder what kind of collateral damage you are carrying today simply because you were hurt by somebody you loved. It doesn't have to be your husband or wife. It could be your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your co-worker. But that what they said to you so wounded and hurt you that you built up walls and it's devastated you. And instead of dealing with it, you've started to fake it. And the truth is, if you don't get healed from your wounds, you will bleed on the people that never cut you. If you don't heal from your wounds, you will bleed on the people that didn't cut you. Why? Because hurting people hurt people. And they are easily hurt by people. We live in a nation, as Billy Graham said, they worry about offending everybody in the world except God. simply saying I'm sorry saying I'm sorry the need to apologize transcends all human relationships and it's not enough to say it you have to mean it you have to take on a posture of humility because when it comes to communication, your attitude is even more important than your words. Over 90% of communication is nonverbal. Only 7% of communication, we actually use words to do it. The rest of it deals with vocal tone, pitch, how we said it, body language, facial expressions. All those things go into communicating whether we're sincere or not. And it takes humility to be vulnerable enough and humble enough to say, I'm sorry. I wonder how much better your relationships would be right now if you could simply say, I'm sorry. If we could simply say, I'm wrong. If we could simply examine and honestly assess what part we've played in hurting the people we love. And the reason this is important is if I can help change your relationships, I can help change your, uh, your life. Happiness can happen just like this when we're in right relationship with God and with others. But apology is the doorway to restoration in relationship. And it's not enough to say, I'm sorry. You have to apologize in the right way. Same with Throw this last slide up for me if you don't care. So let's just take a minute, examine ourselves. Here's a few words to help us grasp whether we might have issues with pride or not. Some characteristics of pride is fault finding. 
having a harsh spirit, being superficial or fake, being defensive, being easily offended. Listen, pride will kill you. Pride will kill you and pride will kill you forever. Pride will eternally separate you from God. Pride will keep man or woman from crying out to the Savior for forgiveness. Pride will cause you to be more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks himself. And if you worry about what other people think more than you do about what God thinks, you've got a pride issue. You know what the middle letter, letter of the word pride is? And right there is where the problem lay. Let's bow our heads. You're here this morning. And up to this point in your life, you've never given your life to Jesus, though you felt conviction. You know that you're not right with God. But you were more concerned about what other people think. If I walk up front, if I do this, I do that, what will people think? And you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. I'm going to count to three. And at three, if you're not right with God, and today you want to make things right with God, I just want you to shoot your hand straight up and straight back down. I'm not going to come out there where you're at. I'm not. This doesn't save you. It just lets me know that God's dealing with you. So if you're here and you know you're not right with God and you need to make things right with God, on the count of three, just shoot your hand straight up and straight back down. One, two, three. Shoot your hand up. Amen. Amen. All right. The rest of you that are here, during this message, maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart that in a certain area of your life, pride has been exposed. And God wants you to deal with it. If you have relationships that have been damaged, even destroyed, simply because you have allowed pride to gain control over your life and you refuse to say, I'm sorry, you refuse to say that I'm wrong, and it refuse to accept your responsibility in the problem, God wants to deal with you. Now, if you lifted your hand for any of those things, if you need to give your life to Jesus, if you need God to help extract that pride out of your heart, out of your personality, and God's speaking to you as they sing and as they play, I want to challenge you to get out of your seat.